The Bible reading this morning shall be taken from the books of uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 33, and Revelation chapter 19, verse, verse 9. I'll be reading from the New International Version. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husband in everything. Husband, Love your wives, just as Christ himself. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washings with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Revelation chapter 19, verse 7. Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. May the Lord bless the reading of his words. the beautiful brides we have here at church. So if you want to direct your eyes to the screen, we're going to have a little video for you now.
lots of beautiful brides there, wasn't there? I liked Michael's hair. We should bring that one back, I think. Uh, well, welcome once again. Um, my name is Tim, if I haven't met you before. I serve here as uh, a student pastor. Um, and this morning, as you can probably see, we're talking about the church as the bride of Christ. And over the last couple of weeks, we've learned uh, that the church is those that are uh, gathered under Christ's banner, uh, those that are part of God's household, God's building and field. And last week, we heard that the church are those, are, the church are those that are redeemed by the Lord. But this week, we're going to learn how the church is the bride of Christ. What is the church? The church is the bride of Christ. And when you hear this this morning, I wonder what picture came to your mind this morning. I think when we hear that the church is the bride of Christ, we are reminded of our own wedding day, perhaps, or a wedding that you've been to, uh, where you were the bride coming in, or you were the one marrying a bride. And you probably remembered how special that day was, full of excitement and joy, or you're probably feeling nervous and sick as your bride arrives, or you're stepping out of the car for the first time. And this is a picture of my beautiful bride, six years ago now. This is us again. I've grown some hair since then, and I've put on some few kilos, is what marriage does. Or maybe when you hear that the church is a bride of Christ, you have, uh, you're reminded of this longing you have to be a bride. Uh, you've wanted to be a bride all your life. You've been dreaming about it. You've watched countless movies, 27 dresses, Mamma Mia, all that type of stuff. You, maybe you've chosen what, what location, what theme, you want a, a, a rustic look. Or maybe you've drafted up a list of who you want to come and a list of who you don't want to come. Perhaps... Uh, being a bride or groom is something that God has not actually called you to. Perhaps God's called you to singleness, which the scriptures affirm is a perfect way to live out the Christian life. And, uh, and Paul and Jesus put it, uh, being single uh, is beneficial for the kingdom and uh, the work of the ministry. This is what Paul says in Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he says, I say this as a concession. He's talking about his own singleness here. Not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift uh, from God. One has this gift, another has that. Perhaps he, you're here this morning and you, uh, you had a bride or a groom. But for the varying of life circumstances, you're no longer together. Perhaps you've become a widow or a widower, or perhaps divorced. Whatever be your current relationship status, it's my hope that uh, this message, this topic this morning, uh, you'll see the goodness and faithfulness of our Lord Jesus this morning, who loves his church so much, he calls us his bride. And with that, let's uh, begin in prayer. Lord Jesus, help us this, this morning to see how you love us. Lord, help us to understand why you're happy to call us your bride. Lord, would we become a little more like you today? It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning I wanted to begin our message by uh, looking at the, some, some, some scriptures 
which tell of this beautiful picture of the church becoming the bride of Christ. And I want to see, I want to show you how this is woven and developed throughout the scriptures. So I thought, what better way to start than at the first ever bride? The first ever bride of the whole of human history, which was none other than Eve. I wanted to start at Eve because she gives us a clear reference point to look back on to why God goes to such length to redeem and save his bride. And why he goes to such length to make us his bride. So let's quickly turn to Genesis chapter 2. I'm not going to spend too much time here because you're probably well familiar with the story. But I wanted to read it for you to help you get the picture of this first ever bride. Genesis chapter 2 verse 18 says, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I'll make him a helper suitable for him. I'll quickly pause here. The word helper uh, for our modern ears can sound probably a bit negative. But know that the word helper here in the scriptures is used up to 21 times and twice in the context of a woman here in Genesis. Uh, And when the word helper is used mostly in the Old Testament, it's speaking about God as our helper. For example, the, the psalm I read this morning, Psalm 121, I said, I lift up my eyes to the, to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. This is the same word that's used here in the Genesis passage as in the Psalms. And because God is called our helper, it's clear to me that Eve, when referred to as Adam's helper, is by no means less than or inferior to Adam who receives her help. Let's keep reading. Genesis chapter 20, or 2, verses 20 to 25. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused a man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up that place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. He brought her to the man. The man said, This is now my bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. The first bride of humanity, made and married in one day. These verses are packed with the the beauty it is to be in a husband and a wife relationship, and I could say much about this, but I want you to notice the last two verses of this, this chapter. They become one flesh. They felt no shame. This is how the writer of Genesis finishes off this beautiful picture of a husband and wife. They become one flesh. Adam and his wife are both naked and they felt no shame. I want that to sink into us this morning because this is something truly special and amazing. Husband and wife becoming one flesh, standing before each other feeling no shame. I'm going to focus back onto the bride here, but notice the first ever bride, she was pure. She was holy. She was without sin. She was faithful. She was a spotless bride, a perfect helper for her husband. She was without shame, and she was safe. And can I say, regardless of your relationship status, this picture we get of the, of the garden of, of, of Eden is meant to be our reality. We're not meant to live with the sin in our lives nor sin against each other or be unfaithful to our spouses or our friends. 
We're not meant to be blemished or stained by sin, and by no means are we meant to walk around with the shame that we experience. All of these things are unnatural. They may seem normal, but they're not natural. That's not how we're meant to live. It's not how we're designed to be. If anything, what is natural is what we see in the first two chapters of Genesis 1 and 2, where Adam and Eve are sitting there together, made one flesh with no shame. But yet what is natural is to see Christ, to live like him, to be transformed into his likeness. But sadly, this picture of this first bride being made one flesh with her husband, standing before him without shame, without sin, was not the last. Because in only six verses later, the tragedy of the entire human race unfolds as the bride and her husband eat the forbidden fruit. Genesis chapter 3 verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This once perfect bride and her husband, now blemished, now ashamed, now stained with sin. And this is the story that of humanity which continues to this day. But from this point on in Genesis chapter 3, we learn that God's going to do something about this. He's going to do something about his bride. And throughout the entirety of the scriptures, we see a God who has a deep love for his chosen people. A love that seeks to make right humanity's sin and shame. We learn that God seeks to redeem this once spotless bride who has now been stained. And as we read on from Genesis, we get a glimpse from the biblical authors that God's love for his people is kind of like a love for a husband and a wife. And I wanted to note, uh, as we read these passages in the Old Testament, uh, we get a glimpse by the uh, biblical authors that God's love for his people uh, as again, is described much, much like a husband and a wife. And uh, in the Old Testament, uh, we see that God's love is like a husband and wife rather than a bride or bridegroom. And this is more or less a potatoes, potatoes type of thing. Uh, what we need to understand is in that culture, and at that time, they had a betrothal period, which was much like that of what we call our engagement period. Back then, your engagement period or your betrothal period was legally binding. You were considered husband and wife back in those cultures. Uh, although you were considered husband and wife, you unfortunately didn't have your honeymoon or get to live together. But in this engagement or betrothal party, the families would figure out the financial side of things, and the groom would provide the bride with a, with a gift. And this betrothal or engagement period would last about a year until finally you'd have your wedding ceremony where you would, you know, have that beautiful day, that special moment. So no, although the passage may say husband and wife, wife or bride are more or less the same thing. Uh, one of the books that first pick up on this imagery comes from the book of uh, Hosea. And if you're familiar with that book, Unfortunately, uh, God's bride is a bit unfaithful. Hosea chapter 1 says, When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Hosea chapter 3, The Lord said, Go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods. Notice from this one act of rebellion, 
or unfaithfulness, the first bride and her husband, from, her first, from the first bride and husband, now whole nations follow suit. Whole nations are seen as unfaithful. And they continue to rebel against God. But despite this rebellion and unfaithfulness, despite this rejection and idolatry and prostitution to other gods, the Lord is still a faithful husband and announces in Isaiah 54, he says, Do not be afraid. You will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget your shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For the maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. A wife who married young, only to, re- re- to be rejected, says your God. Here we learn, not, not only does God now identify himself as a faithful husband, but we hear some comforting words. Do not be afraid, you will not be put to shame. And in these passages, we kind of get a glimpse back to Genesis 1 and 2, where there is no shame. Another text from Isaiah 62 says, As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so the Lord God will rejoice over you. This Isaiah text more clearly gives us that image of of the bride. But as we continue reading through the Old Testament, we learn in Jeremiah that God's going to do something about this bride. He's going to make right her unfaithfulness. The Lord is going to deal with her shame and sin. In Jeremiah 31, I'm reading quite a bit for you here, but you've got a little snapshot behind me there. It says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I'll make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I'll put the law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I'll be their God and they'll be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, I'll forgive their wickedness and remember their sin no more. Yet after Jeremiah receives this revelation from God, God's bride, his church, his people are still unfaithful. They're still just as ashamed and they're just as sinful. To find out how God really changes his bride, we must turn to the New Testament where we see God's people, his bride, uh, they could never really change on their own. They could have never really dealt with their sin on their own. No amount of sacrifice animals was going to fix our problem. For God's bride needed to be made, uh, for God's bride needed God made flesh. God's bride needed Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. It is only in Christ we see more fully this imagery of God's love for his bride as God sends his son to pay the ultimate cost for his beloved bride. We see God's son lovingly lay down his life for his bride. We see the Lord Jesus taking on the shame and sin for his beloved bride. And one of the texts that highlights this this morning comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul is, where Paul is urging the Corinthians to remain faithfully devoted to Christ. He says here, I promised you to one husband, to Christ, 
so that I, that I, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid, just as Eve was deceived by the, cunning, uh, the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your, your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Probably the, the climax or the, the best picture we get is from our Bible reading that we had this morning. In Ephesians chapter 5, this is where we see and hear of the fullness of how and why Christ calls us his beloved bride. Ephesians chapter 5 says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her, her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they fed and cared for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are all members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But what I'm talking about is Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. In this text, we hear of this fullness, this beauty. It is for you and I to be identified, to be called, to be crowned the bride of Christ. Paul not only gives us instructions about our marriages which can, uh, transcend time and culture, but he uses God's ordained, God's designed image and purpose of a holy marriage to speak of a deeper truth, which you and I are God's beloved bride. And this picture that Paul paints for us, we not only see how and why God loves his bride, but what's expected within the marriage and what's expected of God's bride, the church. The first thing we learn from this text is that Christ is the head of his beloved bride, the church. And in response, the church submits it all to Christ. From this first ever singular bride who is Eve to the bride of Christ, which is the church, there's always been, can only be, the head, which is the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus sits at the head of every marriage. He sits at the head of each church. He sits at the head of all churches from nation to nation. And it is to Christ we owe our reverence, submission, and faithfulness. It is to Christ we should submit ourselves, for he loves us perfectly. Christ is the head of the body, to which he became the bride's saviour. It is here we also learn of Christ's deep love for his bride, to which the Lord gave himself up for you and me. In Ephesians 5, this verse highlights that for us. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. The Lord Jesus loved his bride even to the point of death upon the cross. He's willing to lay down his life for his bride. Why? To make her holy once more. To make her pure once more. To set her aside as his own and reclaim her back once more. 
to get it back from our unfaithfulness, like the story of Hosea. This means that you and I are made holy because of what Christ has done on our behalf. The Lord gave, gave himself up for his bride so that she can faithfully wait for his return on the wedding day. It is here that we also learn that through Christ we are made radiant, without stain, without wrinkle, without blemish. We are made holy and blameless. We are made again without sin and shame. As a bride of Christ, we are made radiant. Jesus fixes our stains. He irons out our wrinkles and blemishes. Christ reverses the sin and the stains and the shame that came into the world through the first bride and her husband. Lastly, we learn that Christ is a faithful husband that provides for all of his bride's needs. In Christ, we are made one. We are made whole with Christ, like that of a husband and a wife who are made one flesh. Christ is a husband that will always provide for his bride. This might not always look like the best earthly things, but Christ will provide enough for his bride. As Jesus is the head of the body, he will also feed us. He will nourish our souls forever. Why? Because we're a part of his body. We are joined with him. We are his bride. We are made whole in him. We are made complete in Christ. We are made one with him like, a fa- like that of a husband and a wife made one flesh. So you ask, what is the bride of Christ? Well, here's a little definition that I together for you there I did use someone's help but since we've looked at the Old Testament and the New Testament now we can give you a bit of a working definition and it says the church being the bride of Christ illustrates Jesus' relationship between him and his bride and the authority that Jesus has as the head of the church for Jesus lovingly serves his bride by giving up his life for her in response the bride of Christ is called to submit and remain faithful to Christ awaiting his return You and I are the bride of Christ. We are betrothed to him. We're in this engagement stage. When Christ proposed to you, he gave you a special gift, a gift that's more expensive than any diamond ring that you'd ever purchase here on earth. He gifted you the person of the Holy Spirit. But now we wait. We're called to submit to him, to remain faithful to him, as we await our marriage ceremony that, which will come at the end of the age. But the problem becomes, well, how do I remain faithful to Christ? How, how do I remain a faithful bride to Christ? How do I remain faithful to him? To answer this question, I think we need to take one step back and ask, are you the bride of Christ? Have you accepted this wedding gift of salvation that Christ has offered you? Because if you want to be a faithful bride to Christ, you first need to meet him. You need to get to know him. And if you're unsure this morning that you know Christ or not, this is for you. Because the Lord wills it that we know him. If we look back in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they know God. They walk with him. They talk with him. God is not just this powerful person up here he's actually personal down here with us it's not enough just to know about Christ but we're called to know him in a personal way 
Just a few texts to highlight this for us coming from the book of John. This is Jesus saying, if you knew me, you would know my father also. Later on, Jesus would say in John chapter 17, now this is eternal, eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, the one and only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. To know Christ is to know God, and to know God is to know Christ. To be the bride of Christ is to be the husband of Jesus Christ. Much like that of our, our modern weddings today, you don't just marry someone you don't know. Okay? It's a bit weird for our culture. All right? We get to know the person we're going to marry. All right? It'd be weird for us if we've never spoken or, or never met or, or just stalked each other's Facebook pages or LinkedIn profiles or whatever. We know information about that person, but we wouldn't actually know them. So again, to be a faithful bride of Christ, we need to meet Christ. We, we need to get to know him. And if God seems far, Deuteronomy 4 says, Seek the Lord your God. You will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. If you want to, be, if you want to know Christ, the husband, seek the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and you'll find him. Tell the Lord you're ready to believe and submit to him. Again, to become a bride of the, uh, part of the bride of Christ, you need to first know Christ. I can't stress that enough. Back to our question, though. How do we remain faithful to the bride of Christ? How do we remain a faithful bride of Christ? I think in our text this morning, our main text from Ephesians 5, we get two key words that if we grasp and, and apply to our lives, uh, we're going to remain a faithful bride to Christ. And those two words are love and submission. Beginning with love. To remain a faithful bride to Christ, we need love. And Paul gives us a grand picture of what love looks like in another passage coming from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He says, If I speak in tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains but I have not love, I am nothing. For give away all that I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy or boast, is not arrogant or rude, does not insist on doing its own way, it is not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoings, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never ends. To remain a faithful bride to Christ, we need to love each other like this. We need to love our neighbor like this. You can have every spiritual gift there is, but if you have love, if you don't have love, you have nothing. And if you don't have love, you don't have faithfulness towards God, because Christ calls us to love each other. And for those in the context of marriage, <coughs> excuse me, love also looks like this. But yet, if we go back to our main passage, uh, Paul kind of turns up the notch on what love looks like between a husband and a wife. He says, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. This is the example that we are to follow. For the husbands here this morning... Uh, This is a huge calling, isn't it? 
I suspect if you're like me, you've probably failed this a few times, to which, you're not, to which your wife is nodding, yes, you have. But husbands, we ought to be willingly laying down our lives for our bride. Not just, I'll take a bullet for you, honey, but are you willing to give up parts of your life for the well-benefit, for the well-being of your wife? To our wives, to love our wives like Christ loves the church, it takes personal sacrifice. There's no cheat codes on this one. It takes sacrifice, it takes work, it takes a life of persistence. It takes a mindset of, of how can I love and serve my wife today? It takes a mindset of not what can I get out of this uh, relationship, but how can I add to it? It takes unconditional love. Even when things get hard, even in the face of unfaithfulness, Christ still calls us to love our wives like Christ loved the church. To love your wives like Christ loved the church, it takes faithfulness on your part. Your, uh, you and your wife are made one flesh. The union of marriage being made one flesh is something to be treasured. It is something that God has ordained and blessed since the first ever bride and her husband. Being one flesh means that you're faithful to the relation, your, your faithfulness to the relationship matters. It's an exclusive relationship between you and your wife. Let nothing, let nothing tempt you or pull you away from this special relationship. Jesus said in Matthew 19, so they are no longer two but one flesh, therefore what God has joined together, let no man separate. To be faithful to Christ, uh, for if we do, sorry, excuse me, for if, for if we're to be able, uh, sorry, for if we are able to be faithful to Christ as we, await, as we await his return, we must love. And we must love our wives like Christ loved the church. To be faithful to Christ, we also need to submit to Christ. I've spoken about this, I touched on this just a minute ago. I'm not going to give you too much more, but uh, I'll reaffirm that Christ calls us to submit to him as he is the head of the church. Now this word submit to our Western ears can sound pretty negative. It sounds like God's asking us to be you know, mindless robots. All right? I'm going to suggest that's not the case. I'm going to suggest that this word submit is actually also different in Ephesians 5 than the word obey. In our main passage this morning, God calls us first to submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. Our submission stems from, works out of, firstly, our reverence, out of our amazement, out of our respect, out of our awe for Christ, whom exclusively holds authority over all creation, yet who came as a loving servant for his bride, laying down his life for his bride. So when you and I are called to submit ourselves to Christ, this is a, is a willing action. I can't stress that enough. It's a willing action which stems from our amazement, our awe, our reverence for Christ, whom loves us and died for us. You and I are completely free at any point to willingly unsubmit, defy Christ, walk away from him, walk away in rebellion and faithfulness to him. But Christ calls us to faithfulness. To be faithful to Christ looks like a willingness to submit ourselves under his leadership. 
The same willingness to submit to Christ's leadership individually is also expected within a Christian marriage, whereby the wife lovingly and willingly submits herself under the leadership that her husband's trying to provide for, for, him, for the couple or the relationship or the family. This is part of God's design and given roles between a marriage. I want to clarify, this doesn't mean that the husband is to be controlling or domineering over his spouse or that the woman is less than or inferior to him. It doesn't mean the wife is called to blind obedience to her husband. It doesn't make the husband the boss and the wife the servant. It doesn't mean the wife loses her voice when decisions are being made. And it certainly doesn't mean that the wife is to endure any type of abuse. But what it does look like and might look like in the context of marriage is this. It looks like the wife receiving her husband's care, his love, his provision, and accepting his help. It looks like wives supporting your husband, encouraging him, giving him input on, on the direction and initiatives of, of the family, on how he wants to lead and direct uh, the relationship. It looks like resisting the temptation to take control of certain circumstances. It looks like resisting the impulse to undermine or complain about your husband's leadership. It looks like not becoming controlling or domineering of your husband. And this one, regardless of man or woman, is applicable to both husband and wife. Too often we see uh, uh, in relationships one person who, uh, who's controlling or domineering and, and over the other, and it's just ugly. It's sinful. To be faithful to Christ as we await his return, looks like submitting to each other. Looks like wives willingly submitting you, uh, to your husband out of love for him. Looks like loving Christ, sorry, looks like loving, loving others as Christ loved the church. It looks like for husbands, loving your wives as Christ loved the church. These are the ways, these are the ways that we can remain faithful to Christ. So how are we to remain faithful to Christ? One more bit of application for you. I've already said a lot, but probably the best answer I have for you to remain faithful to Christ is that you foster faithfulness. You nurture faithfulness. You steward faithfulness. You continually be, you continually practice faithfulness like you would to your husband or wife. To steward faithfulness to your husband or wife doesn't mean Monday, Tuesday you're faithful, Wednesday, Thursday you're not. All right, it's a continual thing that you steward. To death do you part. It's a lifetime thing. And I think much of these principles apply when we're trying to be faithful to Christ, when we're living out our faith and faithfulness to him. In other words, I can't say, you can't say you follow Christ on Sunday and, and the rest of the week it's fair game for sin and unfaithfulness. No, God calls that unfaithfulness and God calls us out of a life like that. Now, does God call us to faithfulness? Yes, it's the fruit of the Spirit. But does God know we're going to get it right all the time? No, of course not. We've been sinned. We're blemished. We're stained. Yet, we strive to be faithful to Him. Although we're blemished and stained by sin, and thanks be to God that he is the one who makes us holy. It's not what we do, it's what God has done for us. He makes us pure and right, 
We can't do it on our own. That's why God sent us, his husband, to reclaim us back. And now as we wait, as we start this engagement period, we can begin this journey of transformation, being changed by the word and spirit to look like Christ a little, each, a little bit more each day until he returns. And it's our job to wait, to begin this journey by fostering and nurturing and stewarding faithfulness towards him in all the areas of, life, of our lives, in relationships, in the workplace, and wherever you may be. Because the day will come when the wedding ceremony will begin. And when this wedding ceremony begins, it's going to look a little something like this, coming from Revelations. Revelations 19. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like a roar of rushing waters, and like loud pearls of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you and, uh, Lord, what a, an amazing thing it is to be loved by you. Lord, that you call us your bride. Lord, would we love our neighbours and love our wives like you've asked us? Lord, would we, would we submit to you like you've asked us? And Lord, would we steward faithfulness in our lives? Lord, stewarding faithfulness is a, a lifelong thing. And Lord, thank you that there is grace and mercy when we get it wrong. But Lord, we want to be a bride who is ready for you when you return. And Lord, we pray that day would come soon. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.